Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Michael Belgrave. He's professor of history at Massey University in Auckland. He's here to talk about his new book, Dancing with the King, The Rise and Fall of the King Country, 1864 to 1885. It's published by Auckland University Press in 2017, and it's the winner of the Ernest Scott Prize for Best History Book on Australia or New Zealand for 2017. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. So, Michael, let's start with a bit of geography uh, for, for those that may not know. Where exactly is King Country uh, in New Zealand? Well, the King Country is a pretty large area of land in the central North Island, uh, including parts of Lake Taupo. begins about 120k, 130k south of Auckland and then runs for quite a substantial area. It was an area that was loosely defined at various times, but it was the area that remained independent of the colonial and crown forces after the wars of 1863. So a very substantial part of the central North Island. Yeah, what's interesting is for American listeners, um, you, you say in the book that the um, when your book starts in the 1860s, uh, this is when the uh, Civil War is going on in the U.S., uh, the U.S. South you know, breaks away. Uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about the Maori King movement and, and what it meant at the time. The King movement was established in the late 1850s, and it comes around for a number of causes. In the early 1840s and right through into the 1850s, most Maori had become very much tied in to the new colonial world and the tribes of the area where the king country would eventually be established had been strongly connected with agricultural developments. They were growing new crops, exporting those crops to Auckland. Many of those crops were heading over to the gold mines um, uh, in Victoria to feed hungry miners. And Māori were having a pretty strong relationship with governors as well. But in the 1850s, things started to sour. Government became local government, as New Zealand had its own constitution and its own parliament, and that excluded Māori. And that had a very strong impact on Māori, chiefly confidence in the administration. Um, That economy started to collapse by the late 1850s as well. And more and more land was getting into the hands of Europeans and being purchased by the Crown. So a growing concern about loss of Māori identity, about increasing number of Europeans, about loss of land, led to a big discussion about how to resolve these questions. And the fact that they came up with a king, something completely different from any Māori experience to that point, is in itself indicative of how much Māori were engaging in the ideas that the new colony and contact with the European world were creating. The idea was that you put all your land in the name of the king and only he could sell. So it was a, an attempt to preserve land, but also to preserve the mana and status of, of iwi, of tribes, 
and of Māori generally. So, so the Māori king would be kind of a, a counterpart to kind of the British Queen Victoria? Was that kind of the idea? Well, the relationship is always a bit, a bit unclear. Um, certainly many saw a king and a queen as being incompatible with each other. But Māori didn't necessarily argue that and tended to see uh, the queen and the king as being appropriate uh, for the different peoples in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the title. It's Dancing with the King, and you use dancing as um, kind of a metaphor for the diplomatic dance. How did you kind of get interested in diplomatic history? Was it related at all to your work, uh, your years of work with the Treaty of Waitangi? Uh, not at all. Um, the d- diplomatic history is something I've never done before, but it emerged out of the, the situation. Uh, I was working with Arokawa on their treaty settlement and many of their members were parts of the King movement and it suddenly I came across these large hui, these large meetings that went on for up to a fortnight and had five to seven thousand people at some of them. And the leaders of the government um the the governor sorry, no the um the premier or native ministers attended from the European side and um these meetings were intense diplomatic events trying to make peace. So diplomacy became the way that we could describe these events because they they were aware of kind of negotiations and aware that they were operating as two sovereign groups, even though the Europeans really did not like having to admit that the king had authority and undermined the general view that the queen was sovereign over all of New Zealand. The dancing, on the other hand, comes from very much from the personality of Tafio, the second Māori king. He he is a very visual. Uh, he likes music. He likes dancing, but he also uh, sees events very much in almost as theatre. Diplomacy is theatre. Uh, he will change his costume. Will change what he's wearing quite a lot through these negotiations on a single day, uh, and certainly as he trips around the towns of the Waikato in Auckland, and when he travels to London in 1884, it's very much music and dancing that captivates him. But he also sees the the management of the ritual of meetings in Hui as a means of, of as a key part of negotiation itself. A lot has been written about kind of the battles between uh, the Europeans uh, who arrived and, and the Maori. W- was it a real interest of yours to kind of explore this kind of diplomacy, this uh, kind of negotiation of cultural differences? Well, we spent a lot of time over the re- over recent years looking at battles and at the history of the battles. Uh, and these are interesting in itself. But in this case, I was much more interested in the peace much more interested in the attempts by Māori and the Crown to have a settlement, to resolve things, and to get a workable peace to the future. And that had its own drama, a drama that, in my view, was equally important as that of the wars themselves. Tell us a little bit about how we know what we know, you know, about what went on. What what kind of archives did you use? Um, I know you used a a lot of contemporary uh, newspapers. What, What else? Well, the newspapers are fundamentally important. Uh, They are a huge resource, and now that they're digitally available, it's possible to go through them 
in great detail. And it's amazing how much detail on these events is recorded. Now, it is recorded by Europeans and with European perspectives, although these Europeans were often bilingual. And in many cases, they were married into uh, Māori communities. But there is still a European perspective being presented. But nonetheless, Māori engaged with newspapers. They wrote to newspapers. Quite a good amount of material was published in Māori by these newspapers. And I found a really strong sensitivity to the events themselves. But we do have to remember that the, uh, the writers are usually predominantly European. Nonetheless, Māori engagement with written sources, Māori engagement with the European world is such that it's possible to see through these, I think, as much as we can uh, into uh, Māori motivation, um, Māori understandings. And I'd also suggest, and this is where the diplomacy is important, that there's a kind of joint language of diplomacy that is developed here, uh, which means that Neither neither side might have been saying the same things about each other or to each other um, when they weren't present, when they weren't actually negotiating. But no, a, a, a magnificent and rich trove of, of resources that are available to us. It's fascinating to read about um, you know the negotiations between the two sides. I'm curious though about disagreements within each side. So within the European side and within kind of the Maori side, um, were, were there disagreements about how to proceed in the negotiations? Oh, I think it's I think it's really important when we study these events not to just see this as European Maori Crown Maori. Um, these are complex negotiations where different groups have different perspectives, where the politics of each is certainly influencing what people are saying and what people are doing. So Gray, for instance, who's, in my view, desperate to get a deal, um, is strongly supported by many Māori who had not fought against the Crown. He uh, is on the way down. He will. His government will collapse um, almost well, the, the collapse of the negotiations will have a significant impact on his inability to keep an office. On the other hand, decision-making in the Māori world is extremely complex. Uh, individual rangatira, individual chiefs have their own mana, have a right to be consulted and participate. Hapu, different groups, all have to ratify and be part of decisions. And they often have different understandings of what's occurring. Uh, they're often closer to the negotiations than others. And all of this makes a really complex constitutional process as these groups come to make decisions, come to represent each other in the negotiations. You touched on my next questions, but maybe we can dive a little deeper. To what extent did the you know, status of the negotiations depend on the individual negotiators. So you mentioned George Gray, um, but, you know, depending on who was in charge, so to speak, at the time and their comfort level negotiating with the other side. Um, not so much on the individuals themselves, but more on the, the need to come to a peaceful settlement. I mean, after 1870, it's unthinkable for both sides to go to war, really. But the threat of war still remains. So the incentive to come to a peaceful settlement, particularly on the side of the Europeans, and as they want to put a railway through this this region, that gives them an incentive to make concessions and to come to the bargaining table. Over time, 
the the weight of settlement, the increasing number of Europeans on the confiscated land, and the confiscation was a key part of these negotiations. All of this increases the negotiating position of, of the European negotiators. But even someone like John Bryce, who doesn't come across particularly well, but his reputation in New Zealand is, is for his invasion of Parihaka in 1881, where he storms in on a white horse and is met by um, women and children, disperses the community, has an appalling reputation. In New Zealand, he's gr- in the in the Rohipotai, in the King Country, he's gruff, he's determined, um, he's arrogant, but he's certainly negotiating much more so um, than he is in Taranaki. So the situation, I think, creates the individuals rather than the other way around. You say that the agreement of the 16th of March, 1883, marks a, a turning point. Uh, tell us a bit about what happened and why. Um, the main, the main significance of that agreement is that it was written down, uh, even though the text wasn't published in the way that most texts were at the time. Uh, this was the first real agreement. Up until that time, people had got really close to agreeing, um, very, very close with Gray and Tafio in 1878, but that fell apart. In 1883, Bryce is is a, representing a new position, really hostile against recognizing the king, but in this particular position, comes to an agreement that does recognize the independence of the Rohipotai. And within the Rohipotai itself, particularly within Nati Maniapoto, there's a belief in what's called a sacred compact, that an agreement was reached with the crown that was binding, that protected Māori autonomy, that maintained the um, a dry area, a temperance area within the Rohipotai. Now, there's no evidence of a single agreement, but from that time in 1883, a whole series of, 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 of different agreements are met right up to the, um, 1885 and a little beyond. And collectively, these, these, these agreements can be seen as part of the sacred compact. Last question, Michael, before I let you go. You know, as you just mentioned, the book kind of ends in 1885, although there, there's a bit of, um, you know, after effects. But to what extent does, does this dance continue into the more recent past? Well, I mean, it continues in many ways because of the ongoing impact of this this period on the present. It continues in the negotiations that the different iwi involved are having with the Crown today. Um, That level of diplomacy continues uh, and will continue, I suspect, long into the future. But I also just want to comment on one other thing that this diplomacy wasn't just, and peacemaking wasn't just about the the major chiefs and the major European leaders. It was also at a very personal level. It was individuals who'd fought against each other, sitting down with each other and finding the opportunities to to make peace in a very personal level. So while you had the big negotiations taking place with these major leaders, ordinary people were sitting down, playing cards together, telling stories, and spending the time in ways that we'd also call peacemaking, even though it's not high-level negotiation. And that, too, has continued. 
Michael, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Michael Belgrave. He's a professor of history at Massey University. His new book is Dancing with the King, The Rise and Fall of the King Country, 1864 to 1885. It's published by Auckland University Press in 2017. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.